Welcome to All Means All. I'm Carolyn O'Hearn. And I'm Sarah Perglosi. We are two inclusive education enthusiasts striving to shift mindsets, challenge the status quo, and open more doors for all students in all settings, all of the time. Something that has been coming up in conversations we've been having with sites and people that we've been in conversations with uh, from other school districts and even families um, are these labels that inadvertently um, create this barrier for student success. And some of that is because the label creates an expectation for their learning. It creates an expectation for us on what success looks like. So we are going to just, we're going to chat about these these labels that are being used um, and and see how we can start presuming potential for all of the learners by not using these labels and steering clear of those. So one that has been coming up a lot in my life has been the label of high functioning or low functioning. And typically this is heard in the context of they're too low for our program or they're scoring higher than other kids, or they're just they're just higher than the rest of the room, or they're lower than the rest of the room. And that, in in my heart, that just that doesn't tell me anything, right? Um, we've we've had conversations before about describing students based on what they do well and what their specific barriers are and their challenges are. But just by saying that a student or a learner is high or low or high functioning or low functioning doesn't actually tell us what they do well or what they might need help in. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, Carolyn, I think that's a really good point. And typically when I'm in these conversations and I hear that too high, too low, it's more of a putting the onus on the student then for whatever task it is that we're talking about or activity or target that we're working on when you hear you know what students just too low or too high it's typically like I'm washing my hands of them Mm -hmm. because of that label um and and when you said you know it just hits my heart I saw the look on your face and I think that's my same my same feeling is all of these labels take the energy and the onus on us as an educator it's my responsibility to figure out how do I shift the services that I'm providing? How do I make it so it's engaging for this student? And I put it on that student. And for example, Carolyn, one of the things that I think we both hear often besides too high, too low, is also this idea that they're just not motivated enough, right? So like they're not motivated to want to communicate. They're not motivated. They're not engaged. And a lot of times I think that again is putting the onus back on the student and giving us permission as an educator to say it's not my responsibility. I was thinking that exact word. I was thinking unmotivated or lazy or stubborn. I feel like all three of those kind of fall in the same category. And you're right. It puts it back on the student rather on us as the educators who have a bundle of strategies and a bundle of different resources that we can uh, include or try and by saying that the student is lazy or by saying that the student is stubborn really gets away from the fact that we're not capturing what's engaging to them by providing something that's a fun activity or something that they can generalize to another skill in another setting. So, oh my gosh, as soon as you said not motivated, I was like, ah, that was the other one I was thinking of. 
And along those lines too, thinking of, and I love that you, you shifted it to make it seem like, you know, it's taking it away from us and gives us permission to be like, oh, they're just not doing what they're supposed to be doing is um, attention seeking. Oh, well, they're just really attention seeking. And something I saw floating around, I think it was Facebook a while ago, was try replacing attention seeking with connection seeking. And often the students who are labeled as attention seeking, you never hear it like, oh, they're, they're just attention seeking in this positive tone. It's always like, oh God, that student is just such an attention seeker. It's like, well, but if they are actually seeking out that connection, that's the way that they know how to. So how do we provide them with that connection? How do we provide them with that one-on-one engagement and that moment of just connecting for a minute to then get back on track? I think about my own kids where there are moments where they do need more connection. And usually it's those really busy nights, right? We get home late and we're working on getting dinner and then there's homework and then it's shower night. So we got to get that going. And then it's bedtime before we know it. And those are usually the nights that they're like, wow, I'm just like throwing a fit because we haven't had a minute just to sit and connect and reset and get back at our day. And if I just spend two minutes to connect with either of my boys, they're great. They're like, okay, thanks. Let's go back and and get back to our routine. And so I think that's such a big one for a lot of our our learners, especially those who are receiving special ed services, are those those quote-unquote attention seekers who really, if we just had a way for them to get the positive praise rather than the constant negative attention or the redirections, that maybe we would be flipping it to connecting with them rather than rolling our eyes because they're seeking attention. Well, and Carolyn, there's something that you mentioned there is, is first of all, framing it in terms of connection seeking. And second of all, it's thinking about how, as an educator, how as a mom, am I teaching? How do we connect? What does that look like? Here are some ways. So it's not necessarily attention seeking. When I hear that, I think behavior, right? Always. Kids will get our attention any way that they can. And I would argue, we were just talking about our husbands too. Our husbands will get our attention, good, bad, or otherwise, any way that they can. And and it's on us to teach what are appropriate ways to do that. What might that look like? How can we connect? And then too, for my own kids, labeling like, hey, I see that you're, you know, you're laying on the floor and you're having a meltdown. You really just need a hug you know, what, what's going on? Let's talk about how you feel. And I think sometimes when we're talking about these labels, I can hear a lot of people saying, yeah, but these kids are too low to have that conversation. And again, it comes back to what we talked about in the beginning is our perception of others' abilities really drives the teachable moments, how we interact, what our expectations are, and ultimately the learning opportunities that we're providing to all students. And when we think about labels, I'm gonna throw one more in there. Um, And I am gonna raise my hand because I have done this before, but we're talking about all learners on this podcast. We're saying there are no yeah buts, we mean all means all. And it's getting rid of this notion of, you know, those are special ed students. Those aren't my students. I am a gen ed teacher, those are special ed students. This Mm -hmm. is my area, that's the special ed teacher's area. To really get to, you know, students, above all, 
our learners, period. And it's our job when they come into our classroom to teach every single one of them. And so referring to them as students with IEPs or students who receive special education services. But when we start labeling general ed and special ed students, I feel like, again, it gives people almost a sense of permission mm -hmm. that those aren't, and putting it in air quotes, Carolyn, my kids or my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I think as inclusive education enthusiasts, you and I are saying, it is every student is our responsibility and it is on us to teach, to give those learning opportunities, to sit back and be detectives, to figure out what motivates this one student. And it might take a year to figure it out. I hope it doesn't, but we never give up. We just keep looking and pulling in you know, other people on our teams who have different perspectives than us, who might be able to help us figure out what motivates the student. I think something you mentioned already, too, that parallels really nicely is that we've given examples about our own children who are not students with IEPs. We've talked about our own husbands, <laughs> who there are moments I would like to give them an individualized program, but they are not adults <laughs> who um, require additional services. And so, uh, yeah, you're right. This is for all learners. And I think what was highlighted in what you said is that when I think as soon as we get that label of special ed student, that a lot of that permission to sit and connect with them goes out the window. So even though you and I are sitting and talking about how we're labeling in the moment, right? We've, we Earlier we said, let's not use labels, but we're saying like the broad term of you are this person versus you're experiencing something. So yes, we want to label the experience, not jump or lump people into a, a certain group or category. Um, and, and I think for our own kids, you know, we sit there and label the experience and we talk it through and we provide some strategies and provide some options and it doesn't work the first time with our own kids. And so we can't expect that for the learners in a school program that it's just going to click the first time. And for some, it does. And it's amazing. And that's all they needed was, oh yeah, you labeled what I'm feeling. You gave me some strategies. I'm ready to go. I can generalize this. For a lot of our, our learners, they really do need the repetition and the experience and exposure and recognizing, oh, I'm I'm mad and I'm mad because there's lots of different reasons that I'm mad because I didn't get the toy because I wanted seconds of my food and I didn't get food and because I want to go home and you're not letting me. Lots of different reasons. And so those strategies for when I'm mad can still be for whichever reason I'm at. It doesn't have to be, oh, I wanted more food and I can only do X, Y, or Z. Or, oh, I want to go home and I can only do these strategies. Really, to start generalizing that these are some really great strategies to use. And so, yeah, we, we do this with our own children and our own husbands and, and keep providing that model of, oh, when I'm mad, these are some things that I can do. Or it helps me feel better when I and kind of giving that that story back to the learner, back to our own kids. Um, and so I think something we've we've talked about a few different times uh, off the podcast in some of our presentations, um, certainly in a couple of our slide decks. So if you've seen us present, you have probably heard this. Um, and we were trying to find the original author of this cycle. 
And the best we could do, we found it on Practical AAC. Um, and it's that perception drives expectation. Expectation drives opportunity. Opportunity drives achievement. And achievement drives perception. And so there's this cycle that goes around that if I think or I have this expectation that you're not going to do very well, that's going to impact the type of opportunities that I provide to you. And if the opportunities are limited, then your achievement's going to be limited, which then feeds into my perception of you as a learner and your success, which then goes back into my low expectations again. So we really need to flip that around so that we have high expectations. We're presuming potential. You'll hear that all over um, our, our AT world and our, our special education services world. Um, we're presuming potential because we have high expectations, which means we're going to give you some really great opportunities. And from those opportunities, you're going to start to see some really cool achievement moments. And then from there, that's going to move into the perception of you are a learner. You are doing really great things. And then going back into having high expectations again. Um, and so I think part of that goes into, um, you know, catching ourselves with the words that we use. Um, Sarah, I know you raised your hand earlier saying, I, I've done this. Um, I still do it. I'm still catching myself, especially with shifting from special ed students to being really intentional about students with an IEP or learners receiving special education services. It is a shift going from that labeled of a person to who are they and what are they receiving. Um, and then also talking to others about the words that we use and why we use them. So obviously, you know, there are going to be parents or ABA um, or BCBA therapists or um, OTs and PTs and admin and teachers you're not going to catch them all. And so if someone says, oh, the special ed student, or if someone says they're attention-seeking, it probably wouldn't be the most effective method to call them out right there, especially in front of a whole team meeting, to say, oh, you can't call them attention-seeking. But when we start talking to model that language and that shift in our perception of these students to then say, yeah, they really are looking for some connection, so how can we build that into their day? Or yes, they do receive special education services. Or instead of low functioning, you know, this is what the scores, the standardized tests are telling us. But really, these are the, the great things we're seeing about the student. And these are some of the, the areas that we know we can start working on and improve sooner than later. So it is just that shift from they're this, like you were saying, Sarah, like taking that, that onus from our responsibility as educators putting it back on the student of, oh, you're just low functioning. Oh, you're just lazy. Oh, you're just whatever. To shifting it back to us. And that's, it 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 feels kind of icky when it comes back and the spotlight's back on us. And it's our responsibility all of a sudden. Again, I guess. Well, and I think, Carolyn, you mentioned a lot of self-reflection first, right? So you have to be able to listen to the words that you're using. And I think for many of us, you know, we think back to my training and in many ways we were trained to be deficit-based. So rather than focusing on these are the strengths first of the student, um, I even think to some of the IEP meetings and just how it would feel to be a parent sitting in that room. And is there a way that we can shift? Because the words that we use, the language that we use, 
with our families, the language that we use in front of our learners. I, we've all been in classrooms where educators are talking about students that are present as if they were not there. Um, you know, we say constantly, once you know better, do better. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, man, you know, I know I've done that before. There is no judgment here. We've done that. But the biggest thing is today making the choice to know better and to do better and to create a culture of you and I both hold each other accountable. There have been times in the last five years where you've said something or I've said something and we've said, hey, is that really how you want to say it? Or we have conversations about how, how should we talk about this? What are different ways that we can approach this? Because again, I'm gonna say the words that we choose to use really make a difference. And the language that comes out of my mouth reflects so much of what I believe internally. And so it is important to think about what is my in my control. One of my favorite things is to you know control the controllables, the language that I use, the way that I presume the potential of not just the learners. When we think of learners, I think we tend to think students, but it's also presuming the potential of the other educators that are on our team and the growth that they can experience with us. And listening to this, how can you create a movement in your organization where you truly are changing the culture? You're changing how you perceive your role and your responsibility in supporting all learners. So our students, our paraprofessionals, our teachers, our families, how can we create cultures where we're really thinking about inclusive education, where we're sitting back and that responsibility is on each and every single one of us to create just inclusive environments where everybody has a place at the table? I think in the past two or three weeks that I have half joked, but half seriously said, my long-term goal is to work myself out of a job so that all of the students who are in our specialized program are back in local districts with their peers being supported with the tools and resources that they need. And that includes, you know, the educators and the teaching staff who are also trained and feel supported. It's not just taking a student who really needed some intense um, educational opportunities and to figure out what strategies really work for them and then just putting them back into a local district, but making sure that they feel welcomed and um, as part of their own community instead of housed in a separate building where we create a really super fun community. But um, I, it's just there are different opportunities afforded to them in the community that we provide versus the community that's back in their home district um, with, with their neurotypical peers. So yeah, we can't do that if we just keep labeling and keep thinking that it's the student's fault that they're not progressing. Um, thankfully, um, I know we've, we've alluded and we've said a few different times that Sarah and I don't, don't work together during our day job anymore. Um, but we're not going anywhere. Uh, but the team that I work with now they are fabulous in in welcoming and seeing the good and capitalizing on um, all of the great things that the learners can do. Um, and we're working through, you know, making sure that our entire community recognizes that in the, an ideal world, they would be back in their local districts with their peers. 
So we're working on it. That's that's a long-term goal. I would like to work myself out of a job. Let's, let's work on that one day at a time. Carolyn, one thing you just mentioned is you said my team. My team is fabulous. And what we're talking about is messy. Mm-hmm. And it it takes a lot of shifting mindsets, shifting systems that exist. Yeah. Um, and And you can't do that alone. So again, as you're listening, you might have those ahas, like now I know better, I need to do better. But also thinking about who in your organization can you start having these conversations with? Can you go to your director of special ed or your director of general ed and start having some of these conversations? Do you have PLCs that exist in your organization where you can start talking about you know, the language and the labels that we use. And you mentioned the goal is to essentially not have a center-based program, right? And that in and of itself might blow some people's minds, but it comes down to, too, thinking about how are we front-loading all educators? Mm -hmm. So not just special educators, but how are we better preparing all educators to meet the needs of every learner? Agreed. So we're going to end today with a quote, um, as we typically do. Uh, but this one really, really capitalizes on it. And we I might even make a fun graphic for this one because I like it so much. Our efforts and actions produce results. These results come unlabeled. We label them as success or failure based on our expectations. Don't forget that these labels are interchangeable if we allow ourselves to be free from an unhealthy attachment to our expectations. And that's from Steve Mariboli.